Abolition. Abolition. In May of 2010, 16-year-old Khalif Browder was walking home from a party with a friend when he was stopped by police. An officer said a man had accused them of stealing his backpack. All my people been hurting. Growing up lost, we been broken. I just want to let the world know. Worth the Khalif, gotta let the pain show. Every day they judge me by my skin color. Modern day slavery, I'm a protester. Climbing up a broken ladder. All of my peers living life like it don't matter. Trapped in the system, can't escape prison. Even when you innocent, they don't listen. Stand up for your rights, they shooting when we fight. Taking away life, bringing darkness to your life. Political this, political that. They just mad at the fact, they just hate that we black. This ain't the plantation, no. You ain't taking us back. Malcolm X with the strap, they ain't cutting no slack. Instead of giving hope to fulfill a dream, they'd rather give us pills for the self-esteem. They used to hang us from a tree, now we in the box. Pissing in the pot, you know it's crazy with Donald Trump calling shots. Genocide, homicide, propaganda, justified. Khalif Browder, suicide. May you rest in peace. Proud of my genocide. We were beaten. We were beaten. Stomped. By the correctionals. They hit weapons. They tackled me and myself. They locked me in the cage and starved for days. Fly across the country, dropping grenades. Sacrifice your life so the rich get paid. Underneath the sun, all we feel is the shade. The liquor store, right next to the church. You ain't never felt my pain, can't tell me what hurts. You ain't never walked my shoe, can't tell me my worst. You ain't never been without since the day of your birth. I'm talking to my ancestors. I'm talking to you, slave master. Same book, different chapters. Same script, different actors. Pain is pain no matter how it's measured. When you black and shoot the stars, some shots get contested. It's a cycle for the youth to go and get neglected. So we strap up and shoot just to feel respected. Gang bang and life change to feel protected. By the system, young black males are all affected. We Instagram and Facebook to feel accepted. I pray to God, I hope you can get the message. The judge told me if I plead guilty, I will release from jail that same day. But I didn't do it. You're not going to make me say I did something just so I can go home. If I got to stay here five more months just to prove that I'm innocent, then so be it. It's just, it's just heartbreaking. And it's like, I feel like they were just playing with my life. What's the solution? Less talking and more doing. A revolution. We the people, the constitution. No more losing. We see now, no more illusion. Who the union? Our school system need more approval. What's the guideline? Show me the design. They shutting down rights for a dollar sign. For that real estate, yeah, we know how they debate. Rich getting richer, more food on they dinner plate. Uh, we should march on LaGuardia. Screaming out loud, we need more housing in the area. That we can't afford, these type of issues can't ignore. Instead of walking past, we should pick each other off the floor. Uh, we just product of environment. Either in jail or die before retirement. <laughs> That's the type of shit that they invent. They try to set a Superman, when really he just Clark Kent. I always believed in standing up for what I thought was right. And if I would have just been pled guilty, then my story would have been never been heard. Nobody would have took the time to listen to me. I'd have been just another... I've been hurt all my life. Nights and morning, morning and night. Looking for a change, trying to make a change. Yet everything saves everything.
just heard the song Khalif Browder from Glory Lives featuring Naughty Lee. Peace and welcome to Abolition Today, a weekly syndicated online radio program with specific focus on modern slavery as it is practiced through the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution and by for-profit prisons worldwide. We air live every Sunday, 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 Central, and 4 Pacific. Live streams and archived podcasts are available at abolitiontoday.org. My name is Max Parthas. I'm joined by my co-host, Yusuf Hassan. What's happening, Brother Yusuf? Hey, peace, Max, and peace and blessings to all of our listeners that are tuning in. Word. Last week, we exposed the Casual Killing Act. We'll keep pointing that out throughout our tenure here on Abolition Today. Today, we go into the myth of the Sixth Amendment. The fact that it does not exist in reality is one of the pillars of modern legal slavery. We're going to break this issue down for you like molecular biologists explaining COVID. And with that said, <laughs> let's go over our week first. So, uh, Brother Yusuf, what's been going on for the past week with you, man? Hey, man, you know, supercharged week. I have a, a really big uh, exam that I'm, you know, taking tomorrow that's going to be done Always all and recorded. So, yeah, a lot of my week has been focused on that. We're in the last week of Ramadan. You know, that's always a bittersweet situation, you know, for Muslims worldwide. But, you know, of course, there's all the news of, you know, all the things that we have to report this week to our listeners. So, yeah, I'm definitely ready. How about you, Max? How's your week been? Um, My week has been pretty interesting, man. You know, Even with abolition today, only about a small percentage of what I do ever makes it to, you know, people's ears or eyes. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, I'm always trying to do something in the back. Uh, For instance, today I had a meeting with some of the brothers from Angola as well as outside uh, Angola prison. They're organizing over there. Also, our sister Coletta Harris, who I talked about last week when the documentary No Address came out last week. Well, Next week, she wants me to come on to her program this Tuesday and do an hour-long interview with her uh, to connect the dots for people between homelessness and the mass incarceration that we see in the United States today. And she's also working on a documentary part two that uh, undoubtedly I'll probably be in that one as well. So uh, I'm looking forward to that this Tuesday. Wow. Shout out Um, to Coletta. That's happy. Words. Shout out to Coletta, man. You know, we're 10 episodes deep today, brother. We, we we got two digits in our library. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> where'd the time go, man? <laughs> I know, right? Uh, and we cover so much. We, we really have tried to focus on, um, you know, like the pillars of modern-day slavery and human trafficking. As slavery abolitionists, not only uh, for the purpose of the program, but so there's a library, an educational library, where if you want to know about a specific part, we can point you right to it because we, we're covering as much of it as we can, trying to simplify it, of course. But as we say every week, there's always so much more. We're only just really trying to bring it together to give you an understanding, a beginning, to give you the reasoning you need. But it's up to you to learn more if you want to know more. Right, Yusuf? Right. That's right. You know, I mean, we could, we put the information out there, and, I mean, this is, the information that we share is just a snippet as to what's really available out there as far as, right. you know, detailed information on, on our topics. 
uh, on an average week, like, for instance, with this particular topic, I must have listened to about six hours of uh, video footage and read I don't know how many countless articles and so on, just so I could be more familiar with the topic. I already knew quite a bit, enough to convince me that it was a constitutional crisis, but uh, I learned quite a bit more in the past week just researching for this. Oh, and by the way, the song that we started out with, that was awesome. <laughs> I mean, like, and the brother was right on point talking about Khalif Browder, who is our focus for tonight. You know, we're using him as the example of a violation of yeah. the Sixth Amendment to the farthest degree in every way, shape, and form. So that was why we opened up with that. There's also a couple of videos that I put out during the week about this topic that you might want to check out. So you'll find those on our Abolition Today page on Facebook. So make sure you check those out. Again, you know, moving educational things that you need, really need to know. And we want to suggest that you watch the film, which is available now on Netflix. Uh, it's called Time, the Khalif Browder Story. Uh, you really need to see that. And any music that we play here on Abolition Today can be found on our Abolition Today page on YouTube. So just go to youtube.com slash abolition today and look for abolition music. You'll find it all. Yusuf? Yeah, man, and, you know, you have a gift when it comes to this music. <laughs> you know, I've tried to pull a couple of songs there, but they never make the cut, and I'm glad. <laughs> I'm glad that you select it. The, the things I suggest compared to the things that you come up with, I'm like, wow, I'm glad Max doesn't pick anything that I put out there. Man, I used something inside so strong. That was one of my favorites, as a matter of fact. That was just a suggestion from you. Remember? Oh yeah, you're right. I, yeah, I did yeah. get that one in. That was a mm-hmm. that was a yeah. That that one was so heavy. That song there. Yeah, and it fit perfectly with the bridging the gap segment where Frederick Douglass, of course, is played, and then we have some music that fits with what he's talking about. And that, that really it had me broken up, man. And, you know, also today's anniversary, May seventeenth, uh, the anniversary. Of the Chief Justice Earl Warren, Warren issuing the Supreme Court's unanimous decision in the Brown versus Board of Education ruling that racial segregation in public schools violated the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. And they say the upshot is that students of color in America will no longer be forced by law to attend traditional under-resourced black-only schools. The decision marked the legal turning point for the American Civil Rights Movement. Yeah, uh... May 17th. Wow. I didn't even realize today was the 17th. But, yeah, uh, in fact, Thurgood Marshall was the attorney in that case. He represented uh, Miss Brown all the way to the Supreme Court for this case. And it was a turning point. And, of course, we know all of the things that happened uh, as a result of this, especially when we look at uh, uh, Central – what was it uh, – Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas, and many things that went on in the South. And there was a lot of backlash behind the passing of this case. And we see it carries on now, not so much openly on the lines of schools not being integrated, but the information that's presented to each school. You have some schools in certain areas where you know, all of their books are one, two years old, and you go into the minority communities or you go into the black community, black and Hispanic communities, and you'll see that, 
you know, the school books are 15, 20 years old. So it's still segregated along the lines of the information that's being presented or taught within the schools. But of course, that was still a huge case and a huge decision that was made, uh, what is that, 66 years ago? Mm-hmm. Brown versus Board of Education. Thurgood Marshall uh, was the Supreme Court Justice at the time, right? Didn't he argue the case? Say that again? I'm no. sorry. Thurgood Marshall, uh, the civil rights icon and Supreme Court Justice. Uh, remember, he was involved with the uh, Brown versus Right, he was the attorney on the case. Yes, right. he was and the attorney on the case. It was last week that we mentioned that his uh, son who is also Thurgood Marshall Jr., is a board member for Core Civic, the largest private prison in the United States. <laughs> I mean, it's such a shame, right. man, to go from, you know, civil rights champion to some dude sitting on a slaver's board of directions only being used as a token to try to uh, make put a good face on modern slavery and human trafficking. <laughs> right. It's a slap, a slap in the yeah. face of his father's legacy, for sure. Yeah, it, it is, man. But, you know, here we have a different perspective than most. We're slavery abolitionists. That means that we see this as modern slavery and human trafficking. We can trace it all the way back to its origins uh, immediately after chattel slavery in the way that we know it today, from convict leasing and chain gangs, all the way up to the human warehousing and the wars on drugs, and even today where we're using convict leasing once again. As our brother Tony Crane showed us in that video, they are passing our hand sanitizers that is being made by prisoners who are making like 11 cents an hour right now in New York prisons. <laughs> right. So, yeah, it's convict leasing, and it's not just the state using them. It's private contractors. There's an organization we talked about last week. Uh, we're still researching some of it but where they talk about uh, all of the different players, corporate players involved in the prison industry and who's making money and how. At some point, we're really going to break that down for you, but it's a lot to go through with. Um, again, our focus today is the Sixth Amendment, and the person that we're really using as an example is Khalif Browder, but not only Khalif Browder, because he does represent what we consider a genocide, as the song was just saying. You know, it's a genocide. This happens to millions and millions of people now, uh, m many of uh, from people of color, black people in particular. But with that said, let's start out with unequal justice under the law, the defense attorney's role. So let's go ahead and get into the defense attorney's role and, and hear a little bit of information about that. It's going to take like 10 minutes, but trust me, it's all worth it tonight, especially if you really want to know and you're looking for ways to make a difference. So here we are. Abolition. Abolition. Does our criminal Abolition. justice system Abolition. truly guarantee justice for all? Not if you don't have the money to hire your own top-notch attorney, it doesn't. Our Sunday morning cover story is reported by Lee Cowan. I was looking over the brief. You're about to hear some pretty strong words from this law professor. So strong, they're almost hard to believe. But listen carefully. Of the United States of America. When we uh, pledge allegiance to the flag and we say with liberty and justice for all, that's just not true. I'm sorry. So is the notion of equal justice under the law really just a myth? Oh, I think it is, yes. Unless something changes, we're going to have to someday sandblast equal justice under law off the Supreme Court building because for the 80% of people who are poor, 
we, we don't have anything that comes anywhere close to being equal justice under law. Shocking, right? His name is Stephen Bright. He currently teaches law at Yale University. But he spent much of his career at the Southern Center for Human Rights, fighting to help those charged with a crime but can't afford an attorney to defend them in court. They're hot, okay? So, you know, you got to blow them like we do. People like Shauna Shackelford. Is it good? So what did this do to your life? Ruined it. Yeah? Tore it apart. Back in 2009, her home outside Atlanta caught fire. She wasn't home at the time, but she had taken out a small insurance policy on that rental house, and that made investigators suspicious. I thought that it was just a misunderstanding. Like, they're going to figure this out, and it's going to be okay. But it wasn't. Shauna found herself under arrest, charged with arson. My grandma was like, you might need to get an attorney and talk to somebody. Did you have money for an attorney? No. So she applied for a public defender, a court-appointed lawyer tasked with making sure the Sixth Amendment is upheld. That's the part of our Constitution that guarantees any of us the assistance of counsel. The next case on the docket is the case of the state of Florida. It's a right that's been tested in court, most notably in a case brought in the 60s by a petty thief in Florida named Clarence Gideon. Request this court to appoint counsel to represent. Unable to afford an attorney, Gideon was convicted and sentenced without one. He appealed, arguing his right to an attorney had been violated, and the U.S. Supreme Court agreed. But while the Constitution may promise everyone legal counsel, it says nothing about the quality of that legal counsel. And that's something Shauna noticed right away. How long did you have to wait to hear from your public defender? Two weeks. And his response was, I got a bunch of cases like yours, so I'll get to it when I get to it. When he finally did get to it, instead of going over the details of her case, Shauna says he simply told her to plead guilty and take 25 years behind bars. He said, well, if you didn't do it, then who did it? And I said, I don't know, but I didn't burn it down. And he was like, well, I mean, it looks like you did. He knew nothing about my case when he was talking to me. He was mixing me up with some other case, like he had no idea what was going on. Shauna's case is not unusual. Nearly every case, roughly 90%, in fact, often end in a guilty plea, largely because even if a poor defendant is innocent, most can't afford bail or to wait in jail for trial, which means losing their jobs, their cars, maybe even their homes in the process. Being arrested uh, and spending four or five days in jail uh, can be enough to ruin a person's life, even if they're ultimately found not to be guilty of anything. But this is what we call the arraignment. Take the city of Cordell, Georgia, for example. There won't be any evidence presented. Watch how these defendants all plead guilty as a group. Have you put it? Have you put it? Have you put Bright calls it the meet him and plead him defense. You'll see a crowded courtroom. And there'll be a lawyer there with his legal pad, and he'll be, Miss Smith, is Miss Smith, raise your hand. And they're trying to identify their own clients. And this is they're getting ready to go before the judge in just a moment. Have a seat, folks. Please be seated. We saw the same thing in a Miami courtroom. My clients all arrived on the bus. Where one public defender had to handle a crowd of clients all at once. I don't care who the person is. I don't care how dedicated they are. You cannot represent 500 criminal defendants at the same time and give those clients the representation that they're entitled to. Nowhere is the problem of indigent defense more acute than in Louisiana, which has the highest incarceration rate not only in the country, but in the world. 
Yeah, hi, and this is Rhonda Covington at Public Defender's Office. Take Rhonda Covington. She is the sole public defender responsible for representing anyone too poor to afford a lawyer in her judicial district. That case was dismissed. That district encompasses about a thousand square miles. Just ballpark figure how many people are you trying to defend every year? Probably uh, uh, five, six hundred. Every year? Yeah. The professional standard, according to the American Bar Association, is about 150 felony cases a year. And some think even that's too much. Jimmy, you still here? She has two paralegals and two contract attorneys who help with the load, but they're only part-time. I really don't have time to go to the jail and check on it. That's not right. No, I'm sorry. This was filed in the wrong file. Hang on a minute. It's mostly just her and her two cats, named Liberty and Justice, by the way. She even cleans the office herself. I can ask the judge to reduce his bond. Some people say, well, any defense will do. And some people think, well, you know, they shouldn't have representation because they've been arrested. My job is not to get people off when they've committed crimes. That's not what I do. What I do is to ensure that their constitutional rights are protected. The bulk of the state funding for Louisiana's public defender offices comes from a pretty unpredictable source. It's traffic tickets, which, not on these country roads, isn't exactly a windfall. Compared to the district attorney's office, what's your budget like? Uh, his is uh, five times, six times more than mine. Out of that budget comes assistance and investigators and access to pay for things like DNA testing. I've gone to crime scenes before with my, my own camera of taking photographs. Really? Yes. So each year, it's always something a little less, a little less, a little less. Doing more with less is why she thinks she lost the case for this client. I believe you. I've always believed you. 56-year-old James Waltman. I've decided to go ahead and file a second motion for new trial, citing the, um, the reason being that uh, we had insufficient funds in order to investigate your case. Waltman admitted he assaulted his wife during an argument, but the state also charged him with kidnapping and rape, sentence-heavy crimes he insists he never committed. Covington believed with some investigation she could have at least lessened the charges. But she didn't have the time or the money. I couldn't shut down my whole office for that one case. Being, being innocent, I had all the confidence in the world that uh, I'd walk out. But it didn't happen. All across Louisiana, public defenders in 33 of the state's 44 judicial districts now admit they're in the same boat Covington is in. They're simply too busy to ethically handle their caseloads. If you ain't got a paid lawyer, you're going to go through this. Joseph Allen was arrested last year in Baton Rouge for a firearms violation, as well as a marijuana charge. The court didn't even know he was in jail because his public defender didn't know he was in jail. Did it feel like anybody was on your side? Not really, no. Nobody there to sort of help you through the legal maze? Nobody to no, sir. explain the charges? No, sir. I did all that up on my own, reading the law book. Now Allen and 12 others are suing Louisiana's governor and the public defender board in a class action lawsuit brought by the Southern Poverty Law Center. We're arguing that being appointed an attorney 
who doesn't know who you are, doesn't investigate your case, doesn't come to see you, doesn't take your calls, doesn't ask for a bond reduction, doesn't investigate the evidence, doesn't talk to any witnesses, and doesn't do anything else to move your case, file any motions that are particularized to you, you don't have an attorney. You have an attorney in name only. Lisa Graybill is the Southern Poverty Law Center's deputy legal director. I don't believe in filing lawsuits unless you really have to, right? If there were a way to avoid filing it, we would have. But this injustice has gone on really for too long. It's unacceptable. Back in Georgia, Shauna Shackelford spent years researching her case by herself. Her public defender was too busy with other cases, she said. In the process, she lost two jobs and her home. After all, who wants to hire or rent to a suspected arsonist? Had it not been for Stephen Bright, the only person who would seriously look into her case, Shauna would probably be in jail. His investigation, which he did for free, proved that the fire was the result of faulty wiring, not arson. It took him just two weeks to get Shauna's case dismissed. Just two weeks worth of work? Two weeks. That's all it took. Somebody used to do a little research and try. All right, come on. Let's get in. It still took Shauna Shackelford, though, three more years to get the charges off her record. But now, with the nightmare finally behind her, she's started anew. Hold on, let's do under your foot. She's opening her own business and go, focusing go, go, go. on being a mom to her two-year-old son, Woo! Jay Ben. <laughs> you did get justice, but not the way it should have come. No. Or at the price. It was almost like having to give up my life for my freedom. And that's what I had to choose in the end. I had to give up so many years in order to get to the point of freedom. Abolition. Abolition. You just heard unequal justice under the law. And this is the defense attorney's role being explained through examples right there with the facts about what we're dealing with all across this country. And they used Louisiana as an example, being that it is the prison capital of the entire world. And 80%, well, you know what, I'm not going to get too deep in it yet. I want to go ahead and give Brother Yusuf a chance to speak on what he just heard. Because, you know, I'll be making lists and whatnot. (laughs) Brother Yusuf. (laughs) (laughs) No, you know you get no complaints from me, Max. But, you know, just hearing it from... The defense attorney side, you know, and I have several articles that are going to be posted dealing with how overwhelmed they are through all, you know, all throughout the country. But one case really stuck out to me, and it's a New York Times article from 2019. It's entitled One Lawyer, 194 Felony Cases in No Time. And the attorney in the article, his name is Jack Talaska. He he mentions that in general, uh, based on a workload study, cases carrying 10 years or more should should uh, get about 70 hours legal attention from attorneys. And mid-level felonies, talking about felonies that are like carrying 5 to 10 years, should be 41 hours. And crimes carrying life without parole, 201 hours. And he said, just on dealing with the case where he needed, where it should get 70 hours, he said that's two years of full-time work if he was just working on that case. 
And so they just don't have that kind of time. And it also found that where he was, I believe, I don't have the article in front of me, I believe he was in Mississippi, I believe. But two dozen lawyers in his firm on that agency, the uh, Office of the Public Defender or Public Defender's Office or whatever they call it down there, two dozen lawyers have more cases. And one, one attorney had 413 cases. So these guys, and then their supervisors don't allow them to really work the cases like they need. The, the supervisors are concerned with closing the cases, closing the cases, closing the cases as quickly as possible. And, of course, we know the quickest way to get rid of a case is through a plea bargain. So that's why many times they don't want to put any work in. You know, if you have a de- if you have a defendant where he's saying, "Well, look, we can do this, we can do that," the attorney is always talking them out of it. And just from experiences in dealing with, you know, the system, you hear attorneys all the time. Just they, it's almost like their role is to be the convincer, not to be the defender, but to be the convincer. Convince them that. The deal that's being offered by the prosecutor is the best deal for you, and you stand a better chance of taking this deal as opposed to, you know, effectuating your right to a speedy trial and your right to confront your accusers and the the right to call witnesses on your behalf. So, yeah, the defense attorney is the accuser, is is the uh, convincer, Max. You may be muted. Sorry, I had it on mute. I had it on mute. <laughs> My bad. Ninety-five percent of all criminal cases end up in a plea bargain. It, it is literally like an assembly line of flesh, where these underfunded, overworked, understaffed the, uh, public defenders—some who were literally just getting their license that day, defending murderers and all cases and on and on—where uh, they—they they, just—it's impossible for them to fulfill the conditions of the U.S. Constitution. And this is not something that's happening by mistake. Again, we keep telling you every week this is not by mistake. So let me give you some data. First of all, let's read the Sixth Amendment. In all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy and public trial by an impartial jury of the state and district wherein the crime shall have been committed, which district shall have been previously ascertained by law, and to be informed of the nature and cause of the accusation, to be confronted with the witnesses against him, to have compulsory process for obtaining witnesses in his favor, and to have the assistance of counsel for his defense. So the Sixth Amendment guarantees a speedy trial. You can't be kept in jail for over a year without a trial, allegedly. An impartial jury doesn't already think that you're guilty, <laughs> and that the accused allegedly. can confront witnesses. Against them uh, and have and must be allowed to have a lawyer. The problem is they don't put competent in front of lawyer there. <laughs> so basically, you know, whatever crumb they offer you is it. As far as the history yeah. of this, 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 these plea bargains, plea bargains took off in America around 1920 with prohibition, which led to a steep increase in the number of criminal offenses. By 1930, the number of federal prosecutions under the Prohibition Act alone was eight times the total figure for all federal prosecutions in 1914. Bargaining with defendants to plead guilty in return for lighter punishment seemed like the only way to cope. Prohibition 
ended in 1933, but plea bargains did not. Since 1970, when the Supreme Court ruled that they were permissible, they have become ubiquitous. In 1980, some 19% of federal defendants went to trial. In 2010, the share was below 3%, where it remains today. That's from TheEconomist.com, the trouble spread uh, the troubling spread of plea bargaining from America to the world. It's a, it's a very dangerous situation, but it's part and parcel of modern slavery and human trafficking. Yusuf? Yeah, and, you know, just going back through those elements, you know, that we're going to cover throughout the show, you know, the right to a speedy and public trial. Now, in New York, they have 45 days to indict. And for the most part, there are many cases that do get dismissed because of that 45 days. But the attorneys or the prosecutors always have little tricks of getting around these things that they have to be ready. And that's going to get covered a lot once we start uh, digging deeper into the uh, Khalif Browder situation. But most cases throughout the country, they just have, it's saying a reasonable amount of time. And see, a reasonable amount of time is not the same. You know, my my understanding of reasonable could be one thing and yours could be something completely different. So when you leave something open to interpretation, it's hard to claim any abuse of it because they say, well, well it the, was reasonable. According to the Supreme Court, a year without a trial is too long. And we know that there's people that have been out in, without a trial for 10 years, 30 years. Cleef Rodder, right. three years. The brother that we heard in the other video, 30 years. It happens all the time. Right. It happens all the time because it's not statutorily defined. It's not written anywhere that it has to be, with the exception of, like I said, the 45-day rule in New York. But, again, it still gets manipulated because if it wasn't real, if it was real, Khalif Browder wouldn't have happened. So we know that that gets manipulated. And when it starts talking about an impartial jury, I mean, I have, uh, I don't recall if I put one or two articles up. One would be from LexisNexis talking about a non-biased jury. Do they really exist? And one thing that it mentioned in there said there are a lot of potential jurors out there who won't admit to prejudice or don't even know they have it. What prejudice is the one person is just, a day in the life for another. It's a concept about open to a lot of interpretation. And then another one that mentions, uh, this is from the Washington Post, where it says our jury system is racially biased, but it doesn't have to be that way. It's actually, you know, an opinion that someone put in. There's a law professor put an opinion in there, and he gave the history about, you know, where the idea of you know, restricting being able to strike uh, jurors from jury pools based on race, you know, talking about the Batson versus Kentucky case. But we know it's all, it looks good on paper, but it doesn't carry out in the courtroom. That's the problem. Everything that's written on paper doesn't transfer into reality. When you look at the right to be informed of the nature of charges. You have so many guys sitting in jail right now that have been in jail three, four, five months who doesn't really understand anything about their case. You know, they get arrested. You know, the, the officer 
you know, that the station may say it's such and such, but they don't know the full extent of their charges. Then they get taken to the county jail and they just sit there for months, just sit there for months. And they finally meet, you know, a public defender, you know, maybe uh, four or five months down the line. And if it's in New York City, that's when you finally get to court. Because like I said, you know, in some of our other conversations, New York City, when it comes to Rikers Island, it's just a very unique situation because attorneys generally don't go to Rikers Island. They don't go there. So you won't see your attorney until, you know, a minute or two before they pull you in the courtroom. And the attorney is just there to be the convincer. Hey, the state is offering three to six years. Are you going to take it? Well, I, I think that's going to be the best deal for you. Okay, and the next thing you know, you're canceled going back to the island. You never even went up to see the judge because the attorney went back and told the prosecutor, no, he's not going to take the deal. He's not ready. And then they say they go ahead and get their adjournment before the people even reach the courtroom. So, yeah, Max, the attorney plays a big role in it. I'm sticking to that side of it. I would like to uh, mention some of the things that stood out for me in the video that we listened to. Uh, one of the mm-hmm. things I thought was outlandish was the group plea, what they called meet them yeah, and, and plead them. <laughs> so they've got these attorneys that are handling 500 cases a year, and they're meeting their clients for the first time in front of the judge <laughs> and having right. them all plead guilty simultaneously to these plea bargains that they've already set up right there that day in front of the judge with the prosecutor's assistant. It is, it, it, it's an, oh, man, if you want a picture in a semi-line of flesh, you couldn't make it any clearer than that. And although they're, uh, you know, some of them may be in it for the right reasons, they're in over their head. There's not enough money, there's not enough people, and on and on and on. And then also, during those group pleads, if you watch the video, you'll see what was unsaid. And what was unsaid is that the faces of the people who were paying the fines or looking to pay bail or pleading guilty were primarily black people. <laughs> and the ones representing on the other side were primarily all white people. So the right. racial aspect is very clear right there in the video, even though they chose not to mention that on purpose. But, you know, they didn't mention Louisiana, where 80% of the population are black in their prisons. Talking about they have one public defender that covers a thousand square miles, 600 people a year. You know, that's impossible. You can't, it's not even possible. So that means that people are just falling through the tracks and lives are being wasted and lost. Uh, Many of them innocent people who with the proper counsel would have never seen a jail cell. Uh, Just Absolutely. And Max, there's another article that I wanted to, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to step on you. Right. Well, I wanted to bring attention was... to another article, a uh, New York Times article, which mentioning defendants kept in the dark about evidence until it's too late. It's from August 7, 2017, and it's dealing with cases in the Bronx criminal courthouse. But again, it's not unique to the Bronx. It's happening everywhere where, you know, there's a case, Brady versus Maryland, where the prosecution is supposed to hand over all of the evidence it, it intends to present at trial. But what they do, they found a way to where you know, they can hold it to the last minute. Most states only require it to be handed over, you know, two weeks before trial. And at this point, 
you know, a person could be willing to fight their case and not really know how much evidence that the state has against them or what the state is intending to present at trial. And they get all the way to the last minute to where plea negotiations are cut off because that's another thing with these plea negotiations. Once a trial memorandum is set or signed by the judge, plea negotiations basically stop at that point. And now the person is almost forced to go to trial or the plea goes up. If the prosecutor says, well, you know, I offered you six years, you didn't want to take it. So now here we are on the doorstep of trial. You know, I can't do any better than 10. You know, this is what starts happening. There's a clip that we're going to play later, the uh, R&R Law Group, where they go into detail, Mm -hmm. and that's a specific thing right there. They actually have the form in their hand in the video pointing out how the prosecutor said, look, if you don't pick, if you don't plead now, you get this time. If you don't plead right. after going to court once, you get this time. If you don't plead after going to court right. three times, this is what, and it keeps going up and up, which really, in their opinion, these attorneys' opinions proves that this is indeed a violation of the Constitution. It's forcing people to take these pleas, and it's happening 95% of the time. Um, one right. more thing that I want to add about the video, and then I, I want to switch gears into the prosecutors, is uh, that that particular office that they were talking about was financed by traffic tickets. I mean, oh, my God, man. You're, you're robbing these people in order to pay for the defense of the people you're robbing. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's so that. insidious, man. Like, okay, you know. You go ahead and pay, pay that ticket because that's how your defense is paid for. <laughs> it's sick. And of that money, they say that six times the amount they're getting is going to the prosecutor. The DA gets six times the money that they're getting, and meanwhile, defense attorneys are too busy. Right. So they have much larger things. staffs, everything. Right. And sometimes unlimited budgets, depending on the case. So let's talk about prosecutors just for a minute, and then I want to get into another audio clip. Um of all elected prosecutors are white. 79% are white men. Three in five states have no black elected. 14 states have no elected prosecutors of color at all. It's all white prosecutors in 14 states. Just 1% of the elected prosecutors are minority women. Just 1%. And I think I know all of them personally. It's only like pretty normal. Yeah. (laughs) Excuse me. Every day, 9.5 out of 10 people are sent to prison with unconstitutional plea bargains. Innocence is no impediment. When legislators and prosecutors like former California AG and presidential candidate Kamala Harris are confronted with this wholesale violation of our Sixth Amendment right, their excuse is that if everyone goes to trial, it would break the system. We'll break the damn system then. I don't see anyone right. making excuses like that for illegal violations of the Second Amendment, the First Amendment, or any other constitutional right. Despite what they tell you, some things are unacceptable and compromise is impossible. I either have those rights or I don't. Sworn officials are either upholding their oath to protect those rights or they aren't. Start a revolution if necessary. Shit, it's worth it. We're talking about the Sixth Amendment here which is the pillar of modern-day slavery because it doesn't exist. And I don't know what judge said it. I've been looking for a week and couldn't find it. But he literally said, if you hear or find a case, someone send it to me. The judge said that the Sixth Amendment is a myth 
because if 95% of all cases never make it to trial, there is not enough evidence to prove that it exists. <laughs> it's really just that simple. So um, we're going to go ahead and do one more audio clip. When we come back, we're going to talk about what we hear again. This is all about the same topic. Stay tuned. We're going to keep it on fire. Soon we'll find out who is the real revolutionary. Justice delayed due to the public defender's budget crisis is not only justice denied, but adds to the challenge of mounting an effective defense. You really haven't had the time to sit down and, and talk to him about the case. Right. You don't even have the case. Exactly. Exactly. And there he sits. There he sits, day by day, sitting in, I keep calling it a cage, but I mean, that's really what it is. He's locked in a cage with no recourse, no way out, no way of preparing for trial. I mean, every day that goes by, there's a potential piece of evidence that's being lost or being forgotten that could be that one key that frees him. Right? That evidence never comes back. If someone forgets something, that could be the one key to freeing him. I mean, that doesn't come back. Three full years after Henry Campbell was arraigned in this courtroom, a court-appointed attorney filed a motion involving Campbell and six other defendants. It said that Louisiana's criminal justice system was so broken, allowing prisoners to languish in jail for years, allowing others to go months without any kind of legal representation, that it violated the U.S. Constitution. The Sixth Amendment of the Constitution guarantees every American facing trial the right to a lawyer, even if they cannot afford one. The Supreme Court enshrined that right into law with its landmark 1963 ruling in the case Gideon v. Wainwright. One way society meets that responsibility is with public defenders. But across the country, that system is being stretched to the breaking point, underfunded and overworked. We've created a counterfeit defense, and it's only the illusion of fairness. The public defender's office says it's at a tipping point, and the outlook is not good. We want the state to give them public defenders or to give money to appoint lawyers who can represent them in the way that the Constitution demands. We are dealing with a crisis. Missouri may well be ground zero, the state's public defender system widely seen as nearly broken. The state ranks 49th in per capita spending on indigent defense. Last year, its 320 public defenders handled 80,000 cases, on average more than 240 cases each. Listen to these lawyers in the public defender's office in Jackson County, the state's biggest district, which includes Kansas City. Most days it's overwhelming. Over the next six weeks, I have some very, very serious trials. They deserve a lot more attention than I give them. Mostly all the time. I think I have six murder cases right now. Too many um, for me to be prepared for. Really. Pretty much if you ask any lawyer in this office, they'd, they'd say the same thing. Do you feel you're, you're, you're able to give them all the time they deserve? <laughs> uh, I don't know what you this is a long answer that you're asking for here. No, is the simple answer. Michael Barrett is head of Missouri's public defender system. Defendants routinely sit in jail uh, for weeks just before they meet their attorney. And we tell them that we are very eager to work on your case. But it's going to be a while because there's an awful lot of people in front of you. In 2016, Barrett convinced the Republican-controlled legislature to spend more money for his office. And when then-Governor Jay Nixon, a Democrat, slashed that increase, Barrett took a bold step. 
I wanted to bring attention to this matter because so many people are being incarcerated without competent representation. But before I appointed a private lawyer who didn't cause this problem, I thought I'd start with the one person with a law license in the state who could do something to fix it. A bitter budget battle in Missouri going to a new level last week. Missouri Governor Jay Nixon has just been recruited to be a state public defender. And Missouri's lead public defender has ordered Missouri Governor Jay Nixon to represent a poor defendant in court later this month. The court said Barrett didn't have the power to do that, but he had made his point. Now the courts are considering a $20 million class action suit the American Civil Liberties Union filed against the state. The five plaintiffs, all represented in criminal court by public defenders, say their constitutional rights were violated by long delays. Barrett acknowledges that when defenders are handling as many as 200 cases at a time, there's no way they can fulfill their professional and ethical duties to their clients. You have to go visit with your clients. You have to look at the charges that your client faces. You have to investigate the case. You have to meet with witnesses. You have to talk to the police officer. You have to file motions. You have to receive the evidence that the prosecution has and then discuss the evidence with your client. To think that you can do each one of those steps in 150 cases is absolutely ridiculous. As a result, defendants like Rayshad Ashton often end up pleading guilty to crimes they say they didn't commit just to get out of jail. It's called pleading to daylight. Daylight. Make the case for why a revolution is not what the country needs or wants. We have problems we have to solve now. Now. What's a revolution going to do? Disrupt everything in the meantime? Soon we'll find out who is the real revolutionary. The real revolutionaries. Two clips from PBS NewsHour. Public defender case overload is a ticking time bomb in Missouri, and wait list rose as public defenders refuse cases in New Orleans. And we finish with a 2020 quote from presidential Democratic nominee Joe, architect of modern slavery and genocide, Biden. Yusuf? <laughs> you know, I also uh, posted the article from the Pulitzer Center, which basically is the the article behind the video, that 10-minute video. And one thing that uh, was, was mentioned in the, you know, in the full clip, there's a, there's a part where it says we have created a counterfeit defense, and it's only the mm-hmm. illusion of fairness. You know, it talked about right. how you have 320 public defenders covering 80,000 cases. I mean, that's next to impossible. It is Next impossible. to impossible. And then right. not only the, are the office, not only are their offices underpaid, but so are the attorneys themselves. They're not making a lot of money in the public defender's office. You know, they're state employees. You know, they make less than sixty thousand dollars, which is no money for an attorney, especially the amount of work that goes into becoming an attorney. So overworked and underpaid, you know what that results in. You've seen the extremes they'll go to. They'll have 20, 30 people they never met before, right before the judge, having them all plead guilty like it's some kind of magic spell they're participating in. Do you plead guilty? Right. Do you plead guilty? Do you plead one after the other, like you're swearing allegiance to Satan or something. I'm guilty. They're like, what the hell, man? 
So right. it's in their best interest for you to plead guilty. They don't care what your case is about. They got a thousand more just like it. Just plead guilty. The prosecutor will give you a deal, that it, and we'll go from there, even if you're innocent. They don't want to go look for evidence. They don't want to uh, talk to witnesses. They don't want to question police officers. That takes too much time. How can a person possibly do 600 cases a year and at the same time uh, uh, fulfill your oaths to defend the Constitution, defend people's rights in the Constitution? You just can't do it. Impossible. Yeah. And one thing that we, you know, haven't mentioned and many people overlook is that once a person cops out, basically all of their appellate rights are out the window. That's part of the plea agreement as well. It tells you right in there, you lose your right to appeal. And so when these plea bargains happen, it's always before there any type of uh, motion hearings, if it's you know, some illegal search and seizure or some other violation of someone's constitutional rights, they plead you out before these type of hearings are held. And therefore, you have no recourse in the appellate division, even for ineffective assistance of counsel, because what happens is the defendant has to present what's called a prima facie case of ineffective assistance. And the courts are only going by what's written. So a person could be sitting in jail. He sends a letter to his attorney. His attorney is not going to write him back because, of course, they don't have the time to write back. The attorney is going to come over to the jail, you know, seeing maybe 40 clients within a 20-minute time frame. You know, it's just really just him showing up. And he's not there to answer any questions. So the person has even a hard time proving that he was ineffectively assisted. Of course, you can look right at it and see it, you know, because But what happens is when the person goes for sentencing, the judge asks all these questions and the person is afraid to really say what he wants to say because he's fearful of getting more time. So the judge is going to say, do you plead guilty? Are you in fact guilty? Are you satisfied with your your attorney's representation? And they're standing there shouting, yes, yes, yes. And then they get down in prison, they find out otherwise, look, you weren't represented properly, you could do this, and then they try to appeal, and of course, all of their appellate rights are already gone, Max. Hey, Yusuf, uh, a, uh, we're going to have a music break coming up, and we got kind of a long clip that I want people to hear, our plea, bar- plea agreements, unconstitutional, from all in our law group. They really go into detail there. But before we get to that point, there was one other clip that I wanted people to hear, uh, mm-hmm. and it is a clip from Khalif Browder, uh, the time specialist on Net Browder's story. Um, I pulled out, you know, I, I did a little thing on it earlier this week. It's very powerful to get a chance to check that out on Abolition Today. But he, they talk about the Fifth Amendment specifically and what was happening with him, and I, I think we should play that. So. Uh, do you want to add anything else, or should I just go ahead and? No, by all means. I mean, Khalif is is the the poster child for the Sixth Amendment breakdown of how we yes, how we, how we show it, it's a myth. Exactly, exactly. And and I, I want to tell people some Riker stats when we finish listening to it. So here you go. It's a clip from Khalif uh, Time, the Khalif Browder story. Right now, 
in the shadows of Wall Street, in the shadows of the Statue of Liberty, in the shadows of the skyscrapers that run the world media, is an island. There is no distinction between minors and adults. There's no protection against assault with teenagers of being treated like they were in slavery right now. You want to start talking about structural racism? That is a culture, and we've been doing it for years. Rikers Island is named after Richard Riker. Richard Riker was the chief magistrate in charge of the court system of New York City. The spider at the center of a web of bounty hunting rings, kidnapping escaped slaves. Even children kidnapped and sold into slavery. A few years later, and it still happened. I was having a conversation with one inmate, and he asked me, he said, where are all the white inmates? Very seldom did I see a white inmate come through Rikers Island. And if they did, they didn't stay long. Khalif was legally innocent, but unable to walk out that door. We should be torturing people before they're even tried? What country is that? Holding anybody for two years in solitary on a pretrial basis is inconsistent with who we say we are as a nation. Every time with the court, I was expecting to have my day at trial, and it was just, it was never granted to me. You have a right to a speedy trial, and speedy trial is six months. How on earth was Khalif Browder in jail for three years? The Constitution says that there should be a reasonable time between arrest and the trial. But in New York, we have a law that's called a ready rule. Everywhere else basically says, if you are arrested, your case must be brought to trial within X number of days. But New York's law doesn't say must be brought to trial within X number of days. It says the district attorney must be ready within X number of days. And that makes a huge difference because the way that those days are calculated excludes time attributable to court delays. The court of delay in this borough is worse than any other borough in the city of New York. This is a typical morning outside the Bronx courthouse. Judges are sitting in criminal courts with 100 cases at a time. There are innocent people who spend more time in Rikers than those who are convicted. Khalifa is brought to court December 10th, 2010. He thinks that, okay, finally I'm going to trial. I can state my innocence. But on December 10th, the answer, not ready. DA's office said they would be ready in one week. However, it was impossible to find a courtroom in a week. If there are no courtrooms available and the case has to be adjourned for three months, those three months do not count against the clock. And so you have some prosecutors who abuse that fact. They come back on January 28, 2011. Again, same thing. They request another week. It was just, we're not ready for trial, we're not ready for trial. He had trial delay after trial delay, had prosecutors knowing full well that they wouldn't get another court date for weeks at a time. They come back March 9, 2011. The excuse that day was there were conflicts in the DA schedule. Most of the time those adjournments are for nothing. And it just keeps getting adjourned and adjourned and adjourned. 
now it's going on like six months at this point, that they say they're going to be ready in a week and they haven't been ready at all. And no time is charged to the speedy trial clock. You go back to court and then you find out that they're not ready for trial and it's just, it's just, it's just heartbreaking. And it's like, I felt like they were just playing with my life. Khalif is sitting in solitary. Prosecutors, they don't think about that. They have no concern about that. He's not even human to them. That's just a fact. There are absolutely prosecutors who act insidiously because the system allows them to. Bronx DA Robert Johnson should be ashamed that this happened under his watch. The real fear here should be that we are allowing people to remain on the streets who commit other crimes. Robert Johnson was the DA for a long time. I think someone in power that long is corrupted by power and becomes lazy by power and refuses to acknowledge the problems and institute steps to address it. The Bronx was a really poorly run county. Rob Johnson was not an effective DA. He was the kind of guy he'd offer you as many years as he could, even if you were a decent kid. Prosecutors left Khalif in circumstances at Rikers Island that would break anyone, saying, I bet you we can get Khalif to plead guilty without letting him out. That is a very simple calculus, and it works. Almost everybody pleads out, not because everybody's guilty, because people crumble under the pressure. You want me to just plead guilty to something I didn't do? It was more personal to me, like, no way, I'm not, I didn't, I didn't do it. He demanded his day in court, and they were going to punish him for that. That was a clip from Time, the Cleef Browder story, uh, available on Netflix now, and really drove home what he was dealing with. That six, not only a Sixth Amendment violation, but also an Eighth Amendment violation, because it went hand in hand. Uh, they refused to give him a stay in court, as clearly said, and they also put bail way above what his family could afford. And so a 16-year-old boy goes into an adult prison, which is a hell on earth, spends two years in solitary confinement, is abused by both the guards themselves and the prisoners as well, and then is held without a trial for three years as they purposely move this date over and over again through what they call bullpen therapy, where they make your life a living hell in order to force you to take this plea bargain. And like a warrior, he refused. But there came a point towards the end where he, he just couldn't take it anymore, and it cost him his life. He's you know, you you brought up the the uh, bullpen therapy, and you know, well, first I want to there's there's an article NBC News article about posting bail. America's justice system runs on the exchange of money for freedom. That's going to be up on the uh, Abolition Today uh, page, Facebook page. But for those who don't really understand bullpen therapy. This is what happens when you're jailed on Rikers Island. You know, in most 
most county jails are within almost walking distance of the courthouse to where it's usually just a short uh, van ride, two, three minutes to the courthouse, or the jail is actually connected to the courthouse and there's just a hallway to walk down. But in the case of Rikers Island, you have people from all five boroughs housed on Rikers Island, which is problematic within itself. And typical court day begins 3.30 in the morning. The person is awakened. They go to the mess hall in large crowds, have breakfast, you know, maybe 4 in the morning, and then they go down in the bullpens in each facility. Rikers Island has several buildings. It's, they're putting up so many buildings so fast that I've forgotten the, the count. I think it's maybe 15 buildings over on Rikers Island. So each building has maybe three or four bullpens jam-packed with people waiting to go, to go to court for that day in any of the five barrels. So you sit there for hours, and maybe finally around 7, 30, 8 o'clock, a bus comes and you hear your name called and you whisked off the court, whether well, Brooklyn, Queens, the Bronx, Staten Island, you go off the court and you're putting the bullpen. Then from that bullpen, after waiting for a long time, you get put in another bullpen. And then you put in another bullpen. And each time you're in jam-packed bullpens and you know, you can feel the tension of being in these bullpens because at the same time, anything can jump off at any given moment. So there's the tension of that. People walking around stressed. People have snuck weapons with them. It's all kinds of stuff going on in these bullpens. Then on top of that, you have your case to worry about. So that's the typical day going and then coming back. It's the reverse going from bullpen to bullpen to bullpen to finally getting a bus to take you back to Rikers Island. You could end up in a different building to where you're housed, and you're housed there for many hours. So you, from you getting up at that 3, 3.30 in the morning, you may not get back to the, to the facility that the person is housed in until maybe 8, 9 o'clock at night. And to continually go through this time after time after time, after time, mm-hmm. after time, you know, you can imagine Khalif going through this procedure over the course of three years. So it gets a point where they finally say, well, you can go home today. You know, what do you expect the person to do? All right. And uh, much of that time is spent in chains, shackled hand and foot, particularly coming in through right. to the courtroom. Shackled hand and foot, even if you're innocent, right. it doesn't matter. And yeah. uh, visual aspects are can cause a lot of uh, mental issues. Just looking around you, especially in a place like Louisiana or Chicago, and see all these black bodies being yeah. run around by all these white bodies. And, it, and, and, it, and it's so much going on, Max. Mm-hmm. So much. Over and over. And especially when you yeah. talk about the times when you were able to wear your regular clothes. You know, so now you have to worry about, you know, you go somewhere and some crew might want to roll on you because they like the shoes you have on or they want your watch. You know, it, it was it was crazy. You know, it was crazy. So, 
The Sixth Amendment is a myth. It doesn't exist in these conditions. It's impossible for it to exist. We're talking, I mean, understand the depth of what we're talking about. This is a real constitutional crisis where the Sixth Amendment is so far gone that a federal judge has said that it's a myth without enough evidence to prove that it exists. And I'm going to find that freaking quote somewhere. And, you know, I often pull in the racial aspect of it, but I'm I'm always going to be doing that because there is a racial aspect, and we should be talking about it because it's always been a specific target. So I want to read just a quote from the Daily Beast, uh, an article that says 95% of prostitutes are white and they treat blacks worse. And this is what they said. About one in three black men in the United States can expect to be incarcerated at some point in their lives. Black men comprise... 4% 4% of the U.S. population, but 35% of the prison population. Local police forces are, on average, 88% white. Police like Ferguson, Missouri, are but the most extreme examples of nearly all white police departments patrolling majority non-white precincts. But the white cop is only the first responder. Throughout the criminal justice system, defendants will repeatedly encounter disproportionately white, sometimes all white, agents of the law. Most importantly, the charges against them will be set by 95% white prosecutors elected on state and local levels. In fact, two-thirds of the states that elect their prosecutors have no black prosecutors at all. Since prosecutors can convict 86% of the prison population, this means a nearly all-white cadre of attorneys is putting a disproportionately black cohort of defendants in jail. That's the Daily Beast. All right, well... We, are, we, we we did throw in some extra with that last clip, so now we're going to get into one that's really meaty. And we're, we're going to give it a few minutes because not only are we going to play the clip, it's very, much, very educational. But afterwards, we are going to take our music break right along with it. So we'll play this clip and then the music, and then on the other side, we'll come back. And we're hoping somebody from Ohio uh, will call in, will give us uh, some information from on the ground of what's occurring there. Right, Yusuf? Yeah, hopefully All right. someone directly from inside of Marion Prison. Amen. Now, if you're here with us now, I'm glad you're hanging on because it's just getting more and more powerful. And we're going to start with our plea bargains, unconstitutional, are in our law group. That will be followed by 27, the most perfect album, Sons of an Illustrious Father's Sixth Amendment. Abolition. Alan Dershowitz, in his article, he says most plea bargains, plea agreements, are unconstitutional. So if you're not familiar with criminal law, a plea deal or a plea bargain is an agreement made by a defendant, so somebody who's been charged with a crime, and a prosecutor, somebody who is representing the government and charging the person with the crime. They come to terms and they come to an agreement and they say, I know I've been charged with this crime and it has these penalties, but I'm gonna take a deal, I'm gonna make a deal with you, and in uh, the benefit of that deal is I'm gonna get a reduced sentence. So the penalties would be what they are here, and the prosecutor's gonna offer you a deal, you're gonna take the deal, and you're gonna close the case. It's gonna save the government from having to prosecute you and go through the expense and the time of a trial, and you're gonna get a better deal because you're taking a plea agreement, whereas the penalties would be worse if you went to trial and lost. Well, Mr. Dershowitz says that this is really unconstitutional because you have a right under the Sixth Amendment to have a trial by a jury. You have a right to go through due process and find yourself 
in a court, in front of a court, in front of a judge, in front of a jury, and defend yourself. It's part of what's called due process. The problem with that is that prosecutors will ask for harsher penalties if you actually exercise that right. If you go through the court process and you say, I want my day in court, if you are convicted, then they'll impose more serious, harsher penalties. And so what Mr. Dershowitz is saying is that if you decline a plea bargain, you're going to receive a much harsher penalty. That's a violation of the right to a Sixth Amendment. It's a right to your trial by jury. You have that right, and it's being watered down because the prosecutor's offices are creating these incentives against going to trial. If you go to trial, it will be worse. In the criminal defense world, we call this a trial tax. And it's something that we see very, very frequently. I want to show you an actual form from a prosecutor's office in Arizona that we see very regularly. This is the same type of format. Before I show you the form, I want to explain. When you're charged with a crime, you're going to go through a number of different court proceedings. You're going to have the original charge date. You're going to go to court. You're going to start at the top with what's called an arraignment. You're going to have another court date called a pretrial conference another pre-trial, another pre-trial, then you may work your way up to what's called a trial readiness conference or do a settlement conference, and then you can go to trial. That's kind of the skeleton, the framework of a criminal case. You have a number of different court dates. And the reason why it's important to go to all those court dates or to have an attorney who's going to be going for you is because there's a lot of work that takes place. If you're charged with a DUI, we need to determine whether or not we need to do our own independent tests. We need to read the police reports. We need to schedule interviews with the officers. We need to request records on dash cams and body cams. There's a million different things that we do as we go through that process but it takes time. The other reason why that process is important is because certain things can only happen at certain times. So for example, we don't get access to the police report traditionally, or at least under the rules of Arizona criminal procedure, until the first pretrial conference, which is the second court date. So if you take a plea deal at the first court date, you're doing so by and large without knowing what's in the actual case. You haven't read the report. You haven't done all of those work. You haven't scheduled your interviews. You haven't decided whether you want to do an independent test or not. And so if you're being forced to take a plea deal at that early stage, you're not able to do hardly any investigation into the actual case, which you can see how that could be problematic. Why would you take a plea deal at that early stage if you haven't done any work, if you haven't done your investigation, and you haven't gone through due process? Most people wouldn't, right? Unless they're going to penalize you for going down that chain, for following that skeleton. If you continue to go to more pretrial conferences and you get to a trial and you lose, what if the penalty is way more harsh at the bottom after you've been convicted than it would be at the top? They're going to give you their best deal at the top and give you an incentive to close the case quickly. It's going to save them a bunch of work. Well, how does that work in practice? Well, let's take a look at it. So this is a form from a prosecutor in Arizona. It's from their office. They work at a number of different courts. I've blacked out their names and I've blacked out our client's name, and I want to show you what this form shows. So in this situation, our client was charged with the DUI. It was a very high-level DUI. The blood alcohol content you can see here is a .239. So you can see that right there. It's very high. It's a plea offer from the prosecutor's office. And if you look, here's how they go through the structure. So they say if you take a plea deal at the very beginning of the case, they're only going to ask for five days of jail. See if that focuses there. Five days of jail. 
But if you go through and you have other court dates, the penalty gets worse and worse and worse. So for example, on the second court date, you get seven days of jail. On the third court date, you get 10 days of jail. On the fourth court date, you get 14 days of jail. Then, on the, if it's the fifth or the sixth court date, they're actually gonna come back and add additional charges. So they're saying in this one right here that a person is gonna plead guilty to a first offense regular DUI. It's this uh, 1381A1. Well, if you go and you wanna take a plea deal on the fifth court date, they're gonna add an extreme DUI charge with the extreme DUI minimum penalties. If you go to the sixth pretrial conference or the sixth court date, then they're gonna ask for a super extreme DUI. They're gonna add on another charge and you're gonna get the minimum terms on there. So the minimum terms on a uh, extreme DUI is 30 days jail. So it's gonna go from 14 days to 30. And then if you continue to investigate your case, they're gonna add on those additional charges and it's gonna be 45 days of jail. And they wanna make a note that you know that these two courts do not have home detention. So you're gonna be spending that entire time in custody in jail, which is the exact template for a trial tax. The harder you fight your case, the worse the penalties are going to be. Now this is received very quickly, very early in the case. All the, this prosecutor's office does is they look at the blood alcohol content and they say, all right, based on that number, this is the deal, this is your offer. The further you fight it, the worse your penalty will be. And this is just very common. This is something that we see in other forms throughout the entire state of Arizona. Prosecutors will do that. Judges will do that. They'll say if you go to trial and lose your case, they're gonna impose harsher penalties than you would otherwise get by taking a plea deal. It's called a trial tax. And this type of structure, this type of format, I completely agree with Mr. Alan Dershowitz. I do think that it's unconstitutional, and I would like people to see that. I would love to see other people push back against these types of practices. You're entitled to go through the process and review your case. According to this offer, you don't even have the ability to investigate your case because if you take, it, take a plea deal at the arraignment, your case is done and closed. You get those five days of jail, but at your arraignment, that's too early to even see the police reports or to do an independent test or to do interviews or to question the officers or to question the witnesses. You can't actually defend your case because the rules say that they don't have to give you any evidence. They don't have to give you that material until this next court date at the pretrial conference. So even if you wait and you just say, I wanna wait and I wanna review everything, you're now potentially risking two additional days. And if you continue to fight it, your five days is gonna turn into 45 days. And if you go to trial and lose, they may recommend something even harsher and the judge may sentence you to that, even though the Sixth Amendment says you have a right to a trial by jury. So there's a lot of arguments to the other side in terms of government efficiency, in terms of closing cases and eliminating the, the, the necessary time and investment by the courts and the prosecutors, but in my opinion, I don't think that supersedes your right to a trial and your right to due process.
Our plea agreements unconstitutional from R and R Law Group, and that was followed by uh, you. That was followed by Sixth Amendment from Sons of an Illustrious Father off the album Twenty Seven, the most perfect album. And this is our second time playing one of the tracks from that album. The entire album is called Twenty Seven because each uh, of the amendments of the U.S. Constitution is represented through song from various artists. Yeah, that was a really nice song, Max. That was really yeah. nice. You know, they live a life in active terror just because you aren't the same. They say they hmm. can hold you forever like they've never, ever read the Constitution. Like they never read it. You know, we're coming, we're, you know, we're coming towards the close of our presentation of information and stuff like that. We still got some good stuff to go. But the argument, I think, is pretty much closed up. Everyone agrees. You heard them all, from judges to the attorneys, even prosecutors, the politicians, they all agree that the Sixth Amendment it doesn't basically exist. It's being violated everywhere, every day, all day long. And that is the definition of a constitutional crisis. And when you look at it deeper, you start saying, well, who are the people that are mainly affected by this issue of a Sixth Amendment violation and an Eighth Amendment violation because of the excessive bails? Well, in Rikers Island, 95% of the youth that are there are black and Hispanic, 95% of them. You know how much they charge in Rikers Island to incarcerate a 16-year-old like Khalif Browder? $340,000 a year. Three hundred and forty thousand, right. and that's not counting the court time and the court cases and the lawyers and the, all of those things. The extra money they're making on the incarceration of a single sixteen-year-old uh, child. So yeah, I think that, that we hit it home here. You heard all the information you could possibly hear to convince you that this is the case right now that we're dealing with—a massive violation where it is so far gone that so few cases actually make it to court, you can't even say the thing is real. It's a myth. 
Yeah, you're absolutely right, Max. You know, and now I have attorney friends who uh, started out as prosecutors, and you know, they say when they go into the courtroom, they already know they have the upper hand because the odds, you know, say that the case will end in a plea, so their job becomes as easy as it would be for the def- as easy it would be for the defense attorney to convince the client to take the take the uh, deal. Then if the case does go to trial, they still have the upper hand because they know that they have, you know, jury, you know, juror uh, prejudices on their on their uh, side as well, you know. But we we've heard from all of the evidence that we've presented that very few cases go to trial, so they don't have to worry about, you know, when we look at the seven elements of the Sixth Amendment, the right to a speedy trial, so. That's automatically nullified. The right to an impartial jury, that's nullified. The right to be tried in the jurisdiction where the alleged crime occurred, that's nullified. The right to be informed of the nature of the charges, okay, eventually that's done, but it's not done as as soon as it should be. The right to confront your accusers, doesn't happen. Right to call your own witnesses, doesn't happen. Right to uh, counsel, it doesn't happen because... You, you you get someone who says, I'm your attorney, but he's not counseling you because he doesn't have the time. So he's there to convince you to take the deal. Man, take the deal. So if the seven elements aren't being met, then how can we say that the Sixth Amendment is even real? There's a penalty for exercising the Sixth, your Sixth Amendment rights. Yes. Uh, what do they call that? A trial tax. And that is illegal. And that's exactly what they're using. This huge 95% white prosecutorial pool, primary men, white men, prosecuting all day long uh, a majority of people of color, poor people, class-based, and race-based, and forcing them to take plea bargains regardless of innocence simply because it's convenient. Not because, you know, it's the right thing to do, because it's not. It's illegal, but it's convenient. Right. If you give up your life and admit to guilt and praise uh, your allegiance to Baal, because <laughs> that's what it sounds right. like when they got you being guilty in groups like that, you pledge your allegiance to Baal, we will let you out today. You'll just be a convicted criminal. And, you know, once that happens, you've lost your citizenship. You've lost your rights as a citizen and as a human being, because you'll end up working, paying taxes, and being unable to vote in the election to elect officials to represent your interests. Right, and that doesn't count the amount of people that lose their jobs because of convictions, who lose their residence because of convictions. You know, it just right it that. expands so far out beyond the individual. And that's why we see in the case of Khalif Browser that his mother even, you know, ended up dead behind everything that happened. You know, it's just so much that goes on behind what happens and it's happening right in front of everyone's faces. And, you know, most people just accept it for what it is and they don't want to challenge it in any manner. I'm in agreement with Khalif Browder when he said it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking to know that it's happening to him and it's happening to hundreds of thousands everywhere, all over this country, just like that. Some are cases are worse, some are not as bad, but it's happening, and it shouldn't be happening at all. So we found out right. through this discussion here tonight that uh, of those 
factors regarding the Sixth Amendment, they're not being covered at all. You're not getting a speedy trial. People in prison for three years, five years, ten years, an impartial jury that doesn't think you're guilty. We really didn't get into that too much in the detail, but let's just point out that America at one point had all white juries until recently, as a matter of fact. It was continually going on. Even in Louisiana, they would allow uh, split juries where 10 white guys could vote guilty and the two black people would be like, hey, do we count? Nope, you don't count. <laughs> and then right. uh, the last one, that the accused can confront witnesses against them and be allowed to have a lawyer. Well, if you're pleading guilty, you never get to do any of that. And your lawyer isn't a lawyer. They're just working an assembly line of flesh where due process does not exist at all. Exactly. And we look at Go ahead. Uh, was just one last thing that I was going to mention that, you know, there are close to a million people sitting in county jail right now. And the only reason they're sitting there is because they don't have bail. And their Sixth Amendment uh, rights are being violated because they're not going to get any of the elements of the Sixth Amendment. Isn't this what our, our family members go to wars and fight and die to protect our rights under the Constitution? And they're only to find out that they don't exist. So what are we fighting and dying for? <laughs> you know, if, if you really don't have those rights, we need those rights and we need them yesterday. So let's get into this section now uh, where we cover the news that we couldn't really cover. <laughs> you know what I mean? Let's get some mentions of some news that we really didn't get a chance to cover because it's been an active week in the news. For me, the things that have stuck, stood out is we're already back to police killing as many black bodies as they were when there was no pandemic. They're already right back at it. So, you know, we had the Aubrey case last week. We was talking about this week you got Drace, uh, Drace John Sean Reed, 21 years old. He was shot and killed by police. You got a 14-year-old boy in uh, Metairie, Louisiana, who was shot mm-hmm. by a sheriff and killed. And then you got Brianna, uh, uh, Brianna Taylor, who was shot in her bedroom or in her house uh, when police issued a warrant and raided the house, which was the wrong freaking address again, and killed her. So these are things happening simultaneously while we're in a pandemic. They're going right back to where they were, were before the pandemic. Oh, and the one other thing that, I, that stood out for me is what's going on with the, in, again, in Louisiana, where they're talking about replacing sanitation workers with prisoners, having the prisoners do it for, for free instead of paying sanitation workers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I've read that, and it it. Ain't that America? Isn't that what Bruce Springsteen said? Mm-hmm. Ain't that America? And, and it's not even a talking about it. They actually did it. Outrage rises as New Orleans replaces striking garbage workers with prison labor equal to modern-day slavery. We all know what's going on here, man. You can't be hidden anymore. You can't pretend right. like you're protecting us. And our rights, when we just told you the rights don't exist, where are they? Show me the damn right. <laughs> it don't exist. So what you protect? Doesn't exist. What do I mean? A bunch of white prosecutors and white policemen and white judges prosecuting and judging and policing me for when it is your door duty as a sworn 
officer of the law or a politician mm-hmm. to protect the rights of the Constitution therein. But you're not doing that. So guess who's a real criminal here? Right. All right. You got to pay to play. That's, you know, money driven. The entire justice system is driven by money, as we've shown across many broadcasts. And when you have justice tied to the stock market, there's no justice if there's no money. There was some insidious stuff I heard tonight, man. Like, I was like, what? For instance, when they were talking about using the money from fines or fees or tickets to finance the prosecutor's office and the defense's office. And if mm-hmm. I was using six times as much, first of all, that was crazy. I like, wow, the very people that you're prosecuting are the ones that you're issuing the tickets to, and that money that you're getting from them is going to pay the salaries of both of them. That was that was insidious right. as hell, man. So that was just one of the things I heard tonight. Uh, any summations you want to make about the program, uh, and uh, before I go into the next part. No, you can just go on, Max, because, you know, this, uh, you know, every every time I think about the Sixth Amendment, I always think about Khalif, and, yeah, that, that, that whole story just really bothers me, really bothers yes. me. Please watch the program. It's available on Netflix, Time, the Khalif Browder story. Yeah, um, I still man. haven't even watched it. I can't bring myself to watch it, yeah. I've seen clips of it, but I haven't been able to watch it. It covers a lot of ground. Unfortunately, it doesn't go all the way. And point out the modern right. and, slavery. And, and having been it through it, you know, I've I've spent my time on Rikers Island and, and through the system, so I know. Well, I have an announcement from Jailhouse Lawyers Speak, one of our sponsors here and partners. They're calling on everybody outside to organize in their communities from August 21st the anniversary of the murder of the revolutionary prisoner George Jackson, mm-hmm. and continue until September 9th, the anniversary of the Attica Uprising. There's a form that they would like you to fill out so they can add your actions to the list of events and demonstrations for that day, for those, for those upcoming events. And you'll find the link to fill that out on Abolition Today's page. So, uh, again, they want you to get involved. We want you to get involved. We're already involved, but we're going to get more involved. Uh, throughout Black August all the way up to the anniversary of the Attica Uprising. And, of course, we'll have a special broadcast at the conclusion of all of that. All right, uh, Yusuf, anything else you want to get into before we get into our closing quotes and then our final segment, which is, is of course, one of the most powerful segments of the whole night? <laughs> right. Yeah, I'm I'm ready to get to that. All right, brother. Well, uh, you go ahead and start, and I'll follow you up since you'll be introducing the final segment. Well, I'd like to first start by thanking all of the listeners who've uh, tuned in, you know, for the past 10 weeks, and for those who are new listeners, you know, you know, it's a milestone, sad milestone, but at the same time, we feel as though we've put out a lot of good information, and we've received a lot of feedback from the program. So we thank you. Remember, all of our information is available uh, at abolitiontoday.org. You can catch all of the uh, archives of all 10 episodes. This episode will be on there as well. 
And you can also visit our YouTube page, YouTube slash Abolition Today, for different videos and audio recordings of everything that we've had to this point. So I'd like to close out just with my quote, um, quoting Malcolm X, of course. If you're not ready to die for it, put the word freedom out of your vocabulary. Just that one today? Yeah, that's that's it for right now, Max. All right, all right. Um, I got a little long I want to leave, today, but... I wanted to leave room because I have a feeling that you're going to really have a really good one for us tonight. <laughs> I do, I do. I think they're both fitting. It's two quotes, a short one, and somewhat long one. The first one comes from Thomas Jefferson. He says, I consider trial by jury as the only anchor ever yet imagined by man by which government can be held to the principles of its constitution. And the second one is from William Lloyd Garrison in the speech No Compromise with the Evil of Slavery, 1854. He said, the abolitionism which I advocate is an absolute as the law of God and as unyielding as his throne. To no compromise, every slave is a stolen man. Every slaveholder is a man stealer. By no precedent, no example, no law, no compact, no purchase, no bequest, no inheritance, no combination of circumstances is a slave holding right or justifiable. While a slave remains in his fetters, the land must have no rest. Whatever sanctions his doom must be pronounced a curse. The law that makes him a chattel is to be trampled underfoot. The compact that is formed at his expense and cemented with his blood is null and void. The f- church that, consist- that consents to his enslavement is horribly aesthetical. The religion that receives to its communion the enslaver is the embodiment of all criminality. Uh, that's William Lloyd Garrison. Like you said, I want to thank you for listening tonight. And for all the support that we've been getting now for the past 10 weeks, we really appreciate it. We want to get the word out there as much as possible. So let's make that happen. Thank you for tuning in to Abolition Today, and I'll catch you next week. Peace. And we're going to end tonight's broadcast with our Bridging the Gap segment which features Ozzie Davis reading Frederick, Frederick Douglass. This is part eight, by any means necessary. And in recognition of the MOVE bombing, the, uh, this is the 35th anniversary of the MOVE bombing that occurred on May 13th, 1985, 6-6, 6-20, 62-21 Osage Avenue in Philadelphia. This will be rightly followed by a song from Payday, John Africa featuring Cedric Miley. Remember to check out our archives. Until next week, think about abolition today. Peace and blessings be upon all of you. Abolitiontoday.org. Abolition. Abolition. In Rochester, I was on the southern border of Lake Ontario, and Canada was right over the way. And my prominence as an abolitionist and as the editor of an anti-slavery paper naturally made me the station master and conductor of the Underground Railroad passing through the city. Secrecy and concealment were necessary conditions to the successful operation of this railroad, and hence its prefix, underground. 
My agency was all the more exciting and interesting because not altogether free from danger. I could take no step in it without exposing myself to fine and imprisonment, for these were the penalties imposed by the Fugitive Slave Law for feeding, harboring, or otherwise assisting a slave to escape from his master. But in face of this fact, I can say, I never did more congenial, attractive, fascinating, and satisfactory work. True, as a means of destroying slavery, it was like an attempt to bail out the ocean with a teaspoon. But the thought that there was one less slave and a fugitive slave brought to my heart unspeakable joy. On one occasion, I had 11 fugitives at the same time under my roof and it was necessary for them to remain with me until I could collect sufficient money to get them on to Canada. So numerous were the fugitives passing through Rochester that I was obliged at last to appeal to my British friends for the means of sending them on their way. And when these good people took the matter in hand, I had never any further trouble in that respect. The assistance to fugitive slaves escaping from the South was only part of my work in the Underground Railroad. For the vicious fugitive slave law of 1850 endangered the security of Negroes who had escaped to the North. Fugitive slaves who had lived for many years safely and securely in western New York and elsewhere, some of whom had by industry and economy saved money and brought little homes for themselves and their children, were suddenly alarmed and compelled to flee to Canada for safety so as not to be returned to slavery and to take up a dismal march to a new abode, empty-handed, among strangers. The hardships imposed by this atrocious and shameful law were cruel and shocking, and yet only a few of all the fugitives of the northern states were returned to slavery under its infamously wicked provisions. The thing which, more than all else, destroyed the fugitive slave law was the resistance made to it by the fugitives themselves. A decided check was given to the execution of the law at Christiana, Pennsylvania, where three colored men, being pursued by Mr. Gorsuch and his son, slew the father, wounded the son, drove away the officers, and made their escape to my house in Rochester. The work of getting these men safely into Canada was a delicate one. They were not only fugitives from slavery, but charged with murder and officers were in pursuit of them. There was no time for delay. I could not look upon them as murderers. To me, they were heroic defenders of the just rights of man against man-stealers and murderers. So I fed them and sheltered them in my house. This affair at Christiana and the Jerry Rescue at Syracuse inflicted fatal wounds on the Fugitive Slave Bill. It became thereafter almost a dead letter. For slaveholders found that not only did it fail to put them in possession of their slaves, but that the attempt to enforce it brought odium upon themselves and weakened the slave system. If the city does try to come in here and get you out, what are you going to do? I'm going to do what's necessary, man. What is that? But first, understand why he's coming in here. What are you going to do? All right. I'm going to do what's necessary. What is that? The strategy of John Africa. What is that? Our only defense. What is that? The strategy of John Africa. Uh, you aren't telling me anything. You're just saying the hey, strategy of John Hey, I wouldn't tell my strategy to you. <laughs> Where I'm from, 
you a jack boy or a trafficker. Probably end up locked up in Attica. Cause they consider people like me radical. They say I'm an animal. The Hannibal. Lecter, cause I get them people lecture. Yes, sir, I'm a threat, sir. Give me liberty, give me death, sir. Just me and my mind's bird. You can see the pain in my eyes and they bloodshot red cause I'm hot. Tired of the lies that you feed us, mislead us. Supposed to protect and serve, but you just mistreat us. If you kill my brother, pay vacation. But if I kill your partner, lethal vaccination. If I kill your dog, I get the same shit. shit. Now ain't that about a bitch? Literally about a bitch. Tryna lock me in a box, but I'ma get a out of it. Letting every bullet out the clip until I'm out of it. They say I'm out of it. They say my mind gone. They say I'm trouble, say doubles and taking time bombs. They got me all wrong. Misunderstood. Just cause I'm hood, they assume I'm up to no good. They wanna see me in that talk
Abolition. 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 Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.